0: Double K Super Show, Episode 18, Episode 1, Bowie. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Caram, a.k.a. Cracked Actor.
1: This is Mark Konzorowski, reminding you that the show is brought to you by the letters TVC and the numbers 1-5.
0: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. That's, great. Yes, that's great. As you may have guessed or surmised... Today we're going to talk about a man who spent his entire career reinventing himself, a chameleon, if you will. And, of course, I'm referring to David Bowie. To cover such a momentous subject, we had to bring in somebody who knew her stuff when it came to Bowie. She has appeared numerous times on Pop, a pop culture podcast, Zilch, a monkey's podcast, podcast about four guys who wear makeup, and Cheap Talk with Trick Chat, a Cheap Trick podcast. Of course, I'm referring to Christine Wolf. Christine, welcome to the Double K Super Show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here, Chris and Mark.
1: There's a long bob among us.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and people who uh,
0: know us on Facebook will get the long bob reference. It's a reference to uh, Miss Wolf's hairstyle. But anyway, uh, Christine, before we get into like the kind of discussion and the history, how did you? What was your experience with David Bowie? How did you come about? How did you discover David Bowie?
2: Oh well, um, I say that I have two origins for my my knowledge of or my interest in bowie um i remember his first hit single space oddity um i actually recall seeing him on the share show uh in 75 but it wasn't until now. Oh gosh what year was it maybe 1980 ish i guess i was i i I lived in Mississippi at the time, and my uh oldest sister and brother lived here in St Louis and I would come up and visit them for over the summer and This particular year, I was uh camped out on my brother's couch that was the guest room. <laughs> and i wasn't feeling well i i was like having a like a little bit of a flu or something anyway i had you know a fever I, I just wasn't feeling well so in a feverish state i'm looking across the room at his wall of vinyl and i went over and picked out a couple of interesting looking albums they happened to be diamond dogs <laughs> wow <laughs> and ziggy stardust and i so i was eh, 12 13 somewhere in that age and i was like i'm hooked right I, this was so um so different and it i i didn't make the connection at the time that this is the guy who sang space oddity all i knew was i wanted more of this music so uh, you know i've i've just been a fan ever since and so the first time I got to see him was I dragged my sister to a show in Chicago. He was on the Sirius Moonlight tour for, for Let's Dance. And I dragged her to Chicago, which was the closest location to either Mississippi or St. Louis. And she, in turn, dragged her best friend from, like, high school uh, to go along with us. And they were they said they were shocked. At how many of the songs that I knew because they thought that I had, you know, was like a new fan because Let's Dance and China Girl and Modern Love and all that. Uh, so, so they realized that I had my, my bona fides, as they say, <laughs> in <laughs> Bowie fandom. Mm-hmm.
0: Mark, what was your uh, experience with David Bowie? When did you first discover him and how did that come about?
1: Oh, listening to WMMR as a child. Uh, the local what was then contemporary rock and roll, which is now would be would now be considered classic rock. All of the hits played, the seventies era hits, Rebel Rebel and so forth. Bowie wasn't was the sort of artist who was rather popular in Philadelphia because he as you know, he recorded a live album there in the in the mid seventies, David Live, live at Tower Theater in, in nineteen seventy was seventy four I think it was.
0: Yeah, I believe so.
2: Yeah, that sounds right.
1: So David Bowie definitely had a presence in Philadelphia. In the very, very early 80s, when Let's Dance was released, David Bowie actually made history in Philadelphia by returning to the Tower Theater and selling out five nights in a row. So mm-hmm. he definitely had a presence on rock and roll radio in in the late 70s, early 80s.
0: Definitely. And as for myself, the first time I ever saw David Bowie was on Saturday Night Live in the fall of 1979. And in what can only be described as one of the most bizarre performances I've ever seen, at least definitely up to that date. And I don't remember the song he was doing, but he was made up to look like a puppet. And even though he was standing live on stage, they had people like pulling his like his, you know, his arms and his legs and they were. He was, like, his puppet body was dancing around. I wish I had done my research, but he did a couple other songs as well, and which were a little more normal. But I think, like a lot of people, I really became aware of him in terms of his music uh, a few years later when Let's Dance came out. It was my junior year in high school. I was 16 years old. And, of course, like everybody else, you know, I was listening to Modern Love and the title track and China Girl. But rather than, you know, I started checking out his back catalog. I remember getting Ziggy Stardust, but the album that really drew me in, which... And in this album, in my opinion, is one of the best greatest hits albums of all time. Of course, I'm talking about 1976's *Changes*, One Bowie. Uh, Eleven tracks, not a bad song in the bunch. All, all hits, you know, probably mostly in Britain. I think it was also the first greatest hits album that I had gotten that was chronologically sequenced. So that's, you know, that's where it all began for me. Christine, since you are the expert, I, actually I should be referring to you as Your Majesty because that's what you... <laughs> It said to me in our Facebook chat before we uh did this Your Majesty why don't you regale us with early history of David Bowie
2: Well sure <laughs> and and I appreciate the uh the shout out there I'll I'll take it I'll take it the button queen approves that message
0: <laughs> We like that we want you to we want you to approve because you know this you know our listener will catch you know on any negativity that we project <laughs> <laughs> her, right.
1: her botanic majesty request and requires.
0: <laughs> you get that right. So within, you, know, I, you
2: <laughs> I'm giving you, you, you the royal wave. wave. I won't, uh, I won't say uh, how many fingers oh. are up, but <laughs> hey, that's okay. Like I haven't seen that one before. <laughs> Not for me, you haven't.
0: <laughs> I feel honored that you've just given me the universal, you know, sing, symbol for up yours.
1: <laughs> I've always said yeah. we were number one.
0: Yeah, That's right. that, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Without any further ado or whatever it is that we're doing.
2: Or further Christ- a don't, as Ken Mills might say.
0: <laughs> Christine, why don't you tell us about the early history of David Bowie?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, you know, for somebody who's had uh, such a prolific career, uh, he had some pretty uh, well-documented but shaky beginnings uh, musically. But let's go back a little further even he was born in London in uh, 1947 and he had several uh, early influences thanks to his dad who brought home a collection of American 45s from uh, artists such as the Teenagers, the Platters Fats Domino Elvis who interestingly enough shared a birthday with David Bowie Uh, And oh, and also Little Richard. Uh, Bowie famously said that when he heard Little Richard's song Tutti Frutti, he said, I had heard God. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) He had, you know, he was, as he would say, not the best student, but he managed. He ended up going to this is really interesting. He ended up going to Bromley Technical High School. Where a particular uh, instructor kind of took him under the wing, that was a man named Owen Frampton. Anybody care to guess who Owen Frampton is?
0: Is that Steve Frampton's dad?
2: Peter Frampton's dad. Yes, it is.
0: Peter, I've never, heard, never heard of him. <laughs> Mark, yeah. Peter Frampton?
2: Uh, the name
1: just doesn't come alive to me. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah,
2: sorry. You might know him better as Billy Shears. Oh, well, yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, duh. All right. Yeah. Oh, we that, a,
2: there we, you go. We did a there
0: podcast on that, by the way. Double K yes. to the Movies with our guest, Kathy Williams. But anyway, <laughs> getting back to... Shameless uh, plug. <laughs> shameless. <laughs> we, well, we're nothing if not shameless. We'll do anything to get a second listener on our, you know... There,
2: there you go. There you go. Well, anyway, so Frampton, the father uh said you I know mean, was was known to lead the school or lead his part of you know the the area that he was in charge of through force of personality and not intellect <laughs> and Bowie's colleagues at Bromley Tech were famous for neither force of personality nor intellect but Frampton's area his students it yielded the school's most gifted pupils in the arts. And and Owen really encouraged his son, Peter, not Steve, <laughs> to take up a musical career. And he really was trying to get Peter and David to kind of collaborate, which they did about 30 years later. <laughs> his, in addition to those early... 50s doo type artists. Another big influence on David was his half-brother. His mom had, had married before and had a son named Terry Burns. Terry was a big influence on David when Terry was home. Terry, unfortunately, suffered from schizophrenia and seizures. And so he spent a lot of time in institutions, but he would give Bowie many of, turn him on to many of his lifelong influences, like modern jazz or Buddhism or beat poetry. So he, you know, he, he uh, continued those influences right through to his swan song album, Black Star, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit but he wanted to he knew that he wanted to be a pop star in mm-hmm. fact he announced as much to his mom and dad his mom immediately then said you're going to go work for the electrician who lives down the block i've already set it up mm-hmm. <laughs> so she didn't necessarily have the most um uh, the most confidence in him um but he was undaunted and he kept forming Or joining bands to try to try to get a toehold in and make a name for himself. And each time he would join a band like uh, the King Bees or the Conrad's or, you know, such well-known, well-known entities as those. He would shortly get pretty fed up because they were uh, lacking of any kind of uh, ambition to do anything more than be a cover band for the high school sock hop kind of thing. And ultimately, this is my favorite tidbit about David Bowie. Well, one of them. His name is really David Jones, and he tried to make a go of it as Davy Jones. Wait a minute! Uh,
0: so, a, yeah, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before?
2: <laughs> hey, hey, we're the Bowies. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and in all the reality that that you know, there is a band called the Bowies, and David Jones is you know, uh, ne- uh, Mike Nesmith is playing Ziggy. But anyway,
1: <laughs> It's the kind of story that challenges my belief in daydreams.
2: Uh my face.
0: You. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. But anyway, getting back to uh, the coincidence that he shared a surname with another David Jones.
2: Hmm? Yeah, so he was he was wanting to establish himself professionally, and his manager said, you know what? Well, let me back up. In addition to music, David Bowie was uh, very much into theater performing and he wanted to be known established as either Davey or David Jones. And his manager said, "Eh, it's not such a great idea. Uh, There's this up and coming band called the monkeys and, uh, and one of their members is Davey Jones. And so he's already beaten you to it for using that name. So Bowie changed his name to Bowie uh, in uh, an homage to uh, Jim Bowie of you know the American frontiersman uh, and the Bowie knife guy. So you
0: know what's interesting is that I have a hard time thinking of David Bowie music being sung by David Jones because well, of the, because of the nature of his music. I mean Bowie's music is can be avant-garde, it can be out there, it can be funky. Now, I suppose if we'd grown up in an alternate reality where Davy Jones from The Monkees never made it and David Jones, you know, Bowie be, just stayed David Jones, we would identify him that way. But. I always wanted to sort of also like. Uh. Sorry, guys. <laughs> All right, see we have another guest on the show.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she hates to be left out.
0: What were you going to say, Mark?
2: What I was going
1: to say, you know, I, I always thought that David Bowie kind of had something because it's it's the kind of construction that's very much on the same lines as like Mark Bolin. And I always thought that Mark Bolin had had hit first, hadn't he, as far as like popular he, he breaks?
2: Did. Yeah. So there there's an interesting couple of stories. So they were mates. Uh, Bowie and Bolin were were friends. They used to go dumpster diving on Savile Row because back in the day, it was so hopping there, the the wild swinging London scene, you know, that the clothing shops would throw out a shirt that missed, was missing a button. It was easier for them to just toss it out than it was to have somebody sit there and, and resew a button on the shirt. So the dumpsters were full of like the most current couture and they would dumpster dive and get their get their uh, clothing that way. And for a while in 69, for just a brief couple of months, Bowie actually toured with Bolin and T-Rex. He was third on the bill he was the mime (laughs) he was not he didn't play in an instrument he didn't sing he was the mime on the on the bill (laughs) that's
0: that's mind-boggling
2: it well and to go back to what you said chris about you you can't imagine the connection musically between the two david joneses right actually before bowie became the bowie that we know he had he had two self-titled albums the first one was released in 67 and it kind of flopped but on that album his influences were very similar to the other Davy Joneses including Anthony Newley now if you know anything about the monkeys or Davy Jones he emulated Anthony Newley every chance he got <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. and yeah, and so right. bowie you're, you're talking too. about davy jones from the monkeys right
2: davy jones from the Monkeys. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, well,
0: he was yeah well he was i mean he was a staple of musical theater before yes. he became a monkey
2: that's right and and so was bowie bowie grew up on that kind of stuff and anthony Newley was huge well so the the first david bowie titled album was kind of all over the place music very very scattered but it had a lot of those types of influences so there you go there is the connection
1: what i've heard of that first album that's the album that has that he had a single called the laughing gnome mm-hmm. which, is, which became sort of like you know infamous later on I think they re-released it in the early 70s, and he attempted to sue the company for releasing it without his permission.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of bad blood between him and management for a while. Yeah. The second David Bowie album is the one that famously has Space Oddity on it. That uh, That was released in 69, and he was kind of a folksy kind of guy at that point. And in 1970, that was like a real, real interesting time in in his career. We'll put it that way.
0: I I just want to say the David Bowie album is interesting because it has an interesting history. It came out in England as David Bowie, but in America, it had this weirdly pretentious title called Man of Words, Man of Music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I believe it had the same cover art. But then once Bowie became really popular, RCA Records Uh, signed him and they got the rights to his early music and they re-released it with a with a ziggy photograph and retitled it space oddity and for years i not only thought that was the album's original title but i actually thought that was his first album i was totally unaware of this the 1967 album and depending on which cd reissue you buy you know it's either man of music man awards man of music or it's david bowie now
2: Yes. And and you have to really know your um, your album art to make sure or 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 the track listing to number one, even know that there is a second version called David Bowie or a second entire second album called David Bowie or, or to make sure you're you're getting one that you don't already own with a different title on it.
0: And then, like, 1970 comes, and he does his second album, The Man Who Sold the World. Now, that album title stays the same no matter what country. However, I know at least there are three different album covers for that,
1: which I believe the first one. on three different labels.
0: And the first one, I believe, is one where he's laying on a couch, and he's wearing, like, this dress or some kind of a woman's. He's wearing a dress. Okay, it's a dress. Then it got released in, I think, Canada. With this comic book, like, like a comic strip cover, and it was, you know, again, same title. And then when RCA picked the distribution up, you know, after signing him in the U.S., uh, they released the one that I was familiar with for years. It's the black and white cover where he's doing this spinning karate kick. Again, like, I thought for years that that was the original cover, the black and white one. And then it turns out, you know, there were two other alternate covers. So, you know, it seemed like like they couldn't standardize his releases between countries,
2: right? Well, so okay. So there's interesting stories about all of those different versions, those different cover arts. The the UK version originally was going to be that it's it's a cowboy that's supposed to be like in the vein of of um, John Wayne. The building that he, that cowboy is standing in front of. Is actually the uh, mental institution where his brother had been. Oh what? Wow. Yep. And uh, he, but but Bowie wasn't particularly keen on that <coughs> uh, particular cover art. And at the same time, so it it was that that was in in the U.S. I should say he was touring to try to get some traction over here, and he wore that dress to all that, that he is also on in man who sold the world. He wore that dress to all of his press junkets or all of the radio stations. And, you know, the critics, uh, they ate it up. Um, They were, you know, androgyny and, and, and that was just kind of starting to take shape and, and uh, get a foothold in the cultural psyche. And so, so they they really loved that so the original cover of the uk version is that one where he's laying on the couch on the on the fainting couch they're called wearing that dress and you know critics like um in rolling stone they famously uh said he is ravishing almost disconcertingly <laughs> reminiscent of lauren bacall which is interesting because Bowie himself said he was going for Greta Garbo. <laughs> well,
0: it's, inter- it's interesting because he definitely – definitely in the 70s, he was playing up that – like you said, the androgyny. Is he gay? Is he straight? And he seemed to kind of play both sides of the fence when, in terms of you – know, like if he, was asked, I, I, if he was asked about his sexuality, he would just sort of like – you know, depending on who he was talking to, he was either gay, straight, or ambiguous – but I think that definitely played a lot in his legend.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, he he was very coy about it all. And he was um Yeah, you know, I, I think he was calculating in that. But it was also very uh it was groundbreaking, right? The the LGBTQ community, although they weren't known as that at the time, they really Uh, heralded him as a champion for their cause, right? Here's somebody who is famous and and a big, you know, a a rising star who is uh, is basically identifying as one of us. Um, It gave some legitimacy to the movement, which is (laughs) actually, it was uh, a mantle that Bowie wasn't comfortable carrying ultimately um, for whatever reason.
0: Well, he did an interview in, in in the early '80s, probably around the time of Let's Dance for Rolling Stone, and like, he—I don't remember it, but I, I read about it where I guess he came off as being almost homophobic in a way. They even said, I think, on the cover of Rolling Stone, David Bowie, straight, and he basically said i was never gay it was just a thing i tried and i i don't remember if he said he regretted it or not but it it almost seemed like he did like a 180 back in the 80s you know and i guess you know like mark and i have discussed the 80s were the time when everything got you know very conservative there was a moral majority and even david bowie was trying to appear to be normal by i mean normal for david bowie let's put it that way
2: yeah, well, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with where he was in his own headspace at that time as well. I mean, he had spent the the middle part of the 70s coked out of his brain. Oh, yeah. He he actually overdosed several times. and He also, he also know,
0: doesn't remember recording uh, Station to Station.
2: That's right. That's right. And, I mean... Thank God he left l a and went to Berlin for those years. He got clean and sober and he took Iggy Pop with him and yeah. uh they you know they had some some amazing collaborations during those years put out some of some really interesting uh experimental music you know but so I think that it all kind of ties together with right. He's trying to really distance himself from the the embarrassed. I mean, he was embarrassed by himself, you know, uh, you know, who he who he had become ashamed. Yeah.
0: Right. And, you know, the other thing just before we started recording, remember I told you how things zigzag around these conversations? We just we just jump forward like an entire decade plus. Yes, we did. David Bowie all of a sudden is declaring himself normal. I mean, you know, and of course, as Mark will Confirmed for you the 80s in his opinion did not exist
2: well i was going to say you know i don't know how we're how we're going to reconcile the entirety of bowie's career without chopping out the decade that didn't exist for mark's benefit so
0: mark do you have any comments on that no i'm not here
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh it must be the 80s <laughs>
0: hmm that's like, Mark, you know, most people just were attributed to, like, drugs or alcohol. Mark just says it didn't exist.
1: Well, the thing that I'm interested in, to go back to the, uh, the androgyny issue, there was a point. I do remember that Rolling Stone uh, facetiously once named him the second best male singer of the year and the third best female singer of the year.
2: Something like that, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, I I would never
0: call Bowie a female singer. I mean, maybe if they, obviously they're referring to his looks, but he's always had a very, you know, he has has a man's voice. You know, there's nothing, I I mean, he does a falsetto like on, um, you know, Young Americans, but who wasn't doing a falsetto by the mid-70s? That's right.
1: It's it's interesting that immediately sort of after the height of that androgeist period, like 73, 74, he then go. He then goes into like, I guess you could call it the Philly Soul, Bowie's version of Hall and Oates, kind of like period. The Fame,
0: Young Americans.
2: Yeah, the Young Americans album.
0: And that's and that's interesting too because that's right, like that's right after actually that was right after his he started he changed his singing voice. He, he went from having a more nasal higher register to a more like throaty, bluesy, soul kind of voice. And that started on um, Diamond Dogs, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Mm-hmm. It
0: did. But my favorite album is actually before Diamond Dogs. It's, of course, Aladdin Sane, which, you know, of course, the first time I saw Aladdin Sane, what does that mean? Then, oh, Aladdin Sane. I got it. And there's some great songs, on there, like Watch That Man, Cracked Actor, like I referenced earlier, uh, Gene Genie, which is just a brilliant song. He does a a very interesting cover version of uh, Let's Spend the Night Together by the Stones. It's very Bowie's, let's spend the night together, you know. And, <laughs> of course, that same year, he did a cover album called Pin-Ups. But, uh,
2: Which yeah, I love. I love both of those, um, yeah, but, but of, very uh, different from one another. Well, I,
0: I think I want to understand, the reason he did Pinups was because he was obligated to deliver two records that year. Yes. And he was kind of out of material at the time. Mm-hmm. So, okay, knock out a covers album. And, you know,
2: that's how a lot of, you know, it's it's either that or a greatest hits. That's how people get out of their, how artists get out of their contract. I right? don't
0: think he was ready for a greatest hits at that point. I don't think he had enough material out to really justify one.
2: I mean, in retrospect now, you could take a lot of material from you know, the pre Diamond Dogs or or pre Aladdin Sane era and, uh, and, and come up with a pretty solid track list, but. Right, that's with the that's with the benefit of time and and adoration, right? So. Yes.
0: Yeah, he definitely, yeah. you know, he was definitely tapped into something. Like I said, Bowie was always. I was just watching a biography, a, um, a documentary about him before the we started recording, and I forget who said it. I think it might have been Tony Visconti, but David Bowie, no, or someone else. Anyway, David Bowie was always looking to either his right, his left, or or ahead of him. Like he yeah, was always anticipating. He was, what's that?
2: Never behind
0: him. Never behind He was always looking to the next thing. And usually, if everybody else was doing what David Bowie did, he moved on. He was already moved on from that. See,
2: I'm glad you brought that up because you said something in the introduction. You you repeated the famous nickname that he has, right? Uh, The chameleon of rock and roll. And that's really so wrong because a chameleon will change its look to blend in. He okay, changed right. to stand out. Well, I mean, it's not just you. I mean, it, that is what everybody calls him, right? But they're not really analyzing right. yeah, what right. it means. Mm-hmm. You're right. A
0: chameleon, just yeah. I, I stand chastised by our our guest.
2: <laughs> the only time I will give you this: the only time he really was a musical chameleon was in the late '80s. Right. But uh, but we'll get there, and that's
1: so in other
0: words, yeah. never.
2: <laughs> yes, there you go. That's right. You know, one of these
0: days, like I'm gonna have to do a solo episode of the podcast <laughs> called "The 1980s," and like, and 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 then Mark will do his rebuttal episode called "The 80s." What are the 80s? They did not exist.
2: <laughs> what are you talking about, Willis?
0: <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about, Chris?
2: Yeah.
0: But Thanks yeah, sure. you're right. He wasn't a chameleon. He was he would he was constantly reinventing. I mean, they would. Say, I guess if you were around today, they would say rebooting. But uh, you know, he reinvented himself It's just about every record, really. I mean, even something like Aladdin Sane, you know, granted he kind of looks like Ziggy, but musically he's experimenting a bit, doing stuff like the title track. He's bringing in extra players, and you know, one thing we we haven't mentioned, of course, uh, we're gonna. And well before back- we
2: go there, before we go there, I want to have a trivia question for you. All right. Do you know what Bowie himself referred to Aladdin Sane as?
0: I have no idea.
2: Ziggy Aren't- Stardust goes to America.
0: Oh, well that's true. Well that makes sense.
2: And he that album dropped between uh legs of his Ziggy Stardust tour. He dropped and-
0: between his legs? <laughs>
2: Yes, it did. <laughs> it Probably did.
0: Probably did. No. <laughs> <that. laughs> and who knows who was there to catch it?
2: <laughs> Could have been any number of people.
0: <laughs> you know, and, and Angie would have been like, whatever, you know, because they had that open relationship thing. His wife, Angie, his first wife, Angela, Angie Bowie. One thing that we kind of we kind of overlooked. So, I and mean, we're gonna zig back to Ziggy back to Ziggy back. Uh, the man who sold the world. And um, that was the first time when Mick Ronson came on board, right? Am I correct?
2: yeah yes
0: yes it is yeah the the late great mick ronson in fact a while back i watched uh the mick ronson documentary beside bowie i mean it's about his whole career but of course most of it focuses on bowie and you know it's just it's interesting like he kind of never really emerged from bowie's shadow he tried having a solo career and had a band with um, with Ian Hunter later on, but Mm -hmm. you know, and what was really kind of cool and we're zigzagging again, is in 1992, Uh, they did the uh, Freddie Mercury tribute show, And Mick Ronson was on stage with Bowie for, like, the first time in, you know, probably, like, almost two decades. And sadly, that would be Mick Ronson's final appearance as he would uh, die from cancer a year later. But I think when you talk about David Bowie, particularly uh, Ziggy and Aladdin Sane, actually that whole period from Man Who Sold the World through about Aladdin Sane, you can't overlook the importance of Mick Ronson in in the picture.
2: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, he he was incredibly um, influential, and uh, you know, just one of the backbones to Bowie's band. I mean, I, I they were they were you know great collaborators in that sense. You know, I, I have to say, Man Who Sold the World, I think, is probably my favorite Bowie album, certainly of that era. I just there's something so it, it sets him off in a totally different direction from where he was prior, which wasn't right. really much of any place. Uh, but, you know, it's it's prototype heavy metal. You're right. right? It, it really is. So once again, Bowie setting the pace for everybody else to catch up.
0: And, you know, something recently I just heard, Alice Cooper uh, said recently that, David Bowie was kind of influenced by him to a degree. He mm-hmm. said, you know, David Bowie had seen him live somewhere. And shortly afterwards, he started becoming more theatrical. And he said, you know, before that, you know, David Bowie was just doing folk music. Now, you know, based on his background, you know, it's it's certainly possible he's, he could have seen Alice Cooper and, you know, been influenced. But even if he didn't, he had that theatrical background. He was doing mime. He was doing this so... You know, and he was influenced by rock and roll as well. But you know, who knows really what? Obviously, Bowie's not here to talk about it.
2: It's it's in the air at the time, right? I, I I'll give Alice. You know, okay, fine. It's possible that that was a that was one of the influences. But yeah, I mean, he was Bowie was already just unique in his own uh, in his own skin. Um, even his like elementary age teachers would talk about how, uh, he always had a very independent way or, you know, a very unique way of carrying himself physically, uh, in, in dance, he was always very, I mean, and we're talking about as a child, right? right? Always very, uh, of his own style. And Lindsay Kemp uh, is who he studied under, who uh, also was a a mentor and a teacher for Kate Bush, Uh, another big, huge Bowie fan. She modeled much of her career after Bowie as well. But, you know, yeah, oh, absolutely. And so, you know, Bowie already had a lot going on creatively within his own headspace, I think. He talks about how ziggy here here's a ziggy zag again for you yeah ziggy was really the call for him he said it's the culmination of iggy pop and the the uh, the persona of iggy pop and the music of lou reed to create the ultimate pop rock god i thought so,
0: ziggy stardust was based on someone named by the name of vince taylor who was like some this obscure rock and roller from the US?
2: I've heard that. I'm what I just stated was basically a direct quote from Bowie. So I well, like, you know yeah,
0: well, I, well, like he would know.
2: I know, right? Like well, again, well yeah. again, is he gay, is he straight, is he bi? Is he what is he? So, you know. <laughs>
0: right, right. <I laughs> really, think David was Bowie,
2: Alice I, an influence and or not, you know?
0: Well I think David Bowie is one of those people who's probably told st- stories from several different points of view based on you know the time period what he was taking who he was with what publication was being into for you know interviewed yeah. for because you know he like we said he's caught con- he was constant he's always reinvented himself it's a constant in his career and you know i can't say that i've heard everything he does or that i've you know gotten everything that he does but i like a lot of what he's done and you know i've always respected the fact that uh he always changed and did what he felt he wanted to do and not have it be dictated by some suit at a record company. You know,
2: absolutely. Yes. Yes.
0: As Mark Mark knows, you know, the, the record industry, especially in the eighties became a lot more corporate and, you know, corrupt and just, you know, wanting the artists to just do as they were told. Absolutely.
2: The fact that he stayed true to who he was as a performer, whether with the exception of the late eighties, his whether it was his songwriting or his arranging or his uh his acting or his uh paintings or you know you name it uh, his his business side with, with Bowie Bonds and yeah. Bowie Net you know he he knew who he wanted to be or who he really was and with very few uh stumbles he stayed true to that um, so like him, love him, get him or not, you know, at least there's that. And and those of us who did get most of it, you know, are, are the core group of, of his fans were willing to go along with the ride wherever he wanted to lead.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I mean like my second favorite David Bowie album is uh, Station to Station. I mean, the title track on that is really almost prog rock you know it starts off with this sort of german european kind of and then at one point it's a disco song Mm, and and then that album he's got golden years which was one of his biggest hits i mean it's definitely a big radio song and of course uh the song that mark mentioned earlier before tvc15
1: that album there's a lot of um there's a lot of roxy music on that record he's kind of outdoing roxy music in a lot of ways it's, he's taking on that Brian Ferry crooney thing, mm-hmm. and unfortunately he also gets the G.I. Blue, so to speak, and takes on Brian Ferry's uh, sort of right-wing persona, his uh, love for uniforms and slick back hair. It gets interesting.
2: But, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mention that because that was like at, uh, I want to say at the height of his lowest point. Because he, he, that was the time when he was just so coked out. Chris, the fact that you mention that both Aladdin Sane and Station to Station are like your top two albums, you know, kind of frightens me.
0: <laughs> well, how, how so?
2: Well, I mean, because they are, well, one is at the depths of, of him uh, as a person. He, he said that he was, uh, really fearful for his life um, when he was uh, recording and promoting Station to Station. Right. That was right off the heels of his his movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. He was really kind of embodying uh, the Thomas Newton character from that movie, and he would always like get so oh. totally immersed in his character's that um, he said, I I would often find I I would have real trouble d- divesting myself from those. He said I preferred being Ziggy to being David, right? And it actually both Ziggy and then the Thin White Duke, which is uh, who is on who really is on Station to Station. That's Thin White Duke he said, my whole personality was affected. They wouldn't leave me alone for years. It became very dangerous. And I really did have doubts about my sanity. So, you know, he recognized that, that uh, something was very wrong and he needed to break out and get away.
0: Um, but be that as it may, you know, okay, I get that. And I can see that. But he still made great music. I mean, you, Absolutely. Could, you know, and and you know there's an interview on one of the US talk shows it might have been Diana Shore or Mike Douglas or Merv Griffin where during the interview he's periodically going <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. like which basically is a is a kind of way assigned to the hipsters to say I'm coked out of I'm coked to the tits mates
2: but that was Mike. Was, du- that was the Mike Douglas show. Yeah, okay, I know that interview that you're talking and, about.
0: Yep. And you know it's interesting. Alice Cooper, of course, who went through his own, you know, drug and drink hell. Uh, probably after Bowie, he said in an interview, for a while, the same thing was happening to him. The Alice character, because you got to remember, Alice Cooper was born Vincent Furnier. Mm-hmm. Um, he was being consumed by it, and it was threatening to devour him. Well, once he got he got clean and sober he basically said okay the only place that alice exists is on stage for those 2 hours when he's off stage he's vince and and almost disturbingly to the point where he refers to, alice cooper refers to himself in the third person when he talks about himself
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know alice you know alice exists only on stage alice did that album and but i guess that's his way of staying sane and you know bowie for like what the first ten, twelve years of his career was always playing a character of some sort, the thin yes. white Duke Ziggy, you know the Berlin trilogy, I don't know what you'd call his character then, but even that was a character, kind of this you know the lodger, I guess you could call
2: him yeah, that's a that's a good way to to describe it. well, he said, you know it was easier for him to to be a character, to put on this character than to try to have to be himself because he was he was shy, he was unsure of himself. You know, he never, he said, I never wanted to be a singer. I, I just couldn't find anybody else to sing my songs, so I had to do them. And so it took a very long time for him to be comfortable in his own skin as a performer, as David Bowie. So...
0: Mark, what do you think of, um, you know, David Bowie's various personas? Do you have any thoughts on, like, the Thin White Duke or Aladdin Sane or Ziggy? He goes through
1: so many and changes his musical style and personality. Changes. changes. (laughs)
2: -changes. (laughs) Ch-ch-ch-changes.
1: And, uh, you know, he changes the background players. He changes his venue. And I think Christine summed it up when she said that, you know, it was part of his lifelong interest in Buddhism. Because I do remember I, I do remember a Rolling Stone quote that he made a long time ago talking about how when you basically remove all of your various like inclinations and desires and all of your interests and your personality quirks. You get to the core of your being by doing that. And I think possibly what he part of what he was doing consciously or otherwise was Going through all of his various inclinations and quirks one by one and shedding them off until he finally did get to his core personality sometime in the eighties, perhaps
0: well, yeah, and it's interesting that's a good build up to what I was going to say next because the here come the eighties. And the 80s are just full of changes. I mean, he puts out the Scary Monsters and Super Creeps album in 1980, which is his last record with RCA Records in America, uh, his last record with Tony DeFries as his manager. And I think around that time, he also broke up with his first wife, uh, Angela Bowie or Angie Bowie. And so he's shedding himself of the past. I mean, in a big way. Then he signs for the time a, a, a like a multi-million dollar record deal. Like I think it was 1.5 million with EMI in North America and hmm. comes out with Let's Dance. And for the first time ever, what we seem to be getting is kind of this non-character David Bowie. I mean, he's got like this blonde, you know, gussied up pair for the 80s. And he's he's kind of pared down his approach. He's, well, not pared down, but he's, he's you know, working with Nile Rodgers. It's a little more slightly more mainstream than what he'd been doing, a little more pop-oriented, but even Bowie has said that pers- that was actually a persona as well, David Bowie yes. the pop star. And, 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 I, comes, and I buy that. I'm sorry, Mark. Go ahead.
1: Here comes the inevitable. Are you ready? What else happens in 1983? Who else pairs down, gets rid of the makeup and the costumes, and suddenly experiences a gigantic comeback?
0: As always, Christine, somehow in most of our episodes, KISS gets referenced.
2: See, and I was all ready to say Michael Jackson.
0: Well, no, he just changed his appearance. He put well, on- I
2: mean, that was the year of Thriller. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, yeah, right. And, and Michael Jackson sold more copies of Thriller than David Bowie and KISS's career combined to that date. <laughs> that's right. But anyway... Yeah, but it was definitely, 19th year was definitely, it was probably the year that David Bowie was probably the biggest he ever was in terms of having like a pop star pres, uh, presence. I mean, fame had been And it number- was
2: a calculated maneuver on his part, too. Yeah. I mean, fame. Yeah. Had- and
0: also, the same
1: thing happened to David Bowie that happened to Kiss. As soon as David Bowie takes off the makeup, stops playing androgynous characters. Along comes Spandau Ballet and Culture Club, yeah. and various you know inheritors of the sound, mm-hmm. and the same thing happened to Kiss with you know the LA thing.
0: Yeah, Bowie definitely you know he was like I said like I said before he was also trying to paint himself as being kind of like this straight white male all of a sudden like and really disavowing his you know uh, bisexual past or his androgynous past and really seemed to want to almost uh make himself appeal to middle America and he did i mean let's dance i think was his, was probably his biggest selling album yeah. ever i mean yeah, i think yeah. where i read this it might have been rolling stone or cream where they kind of cynically referenced the fact that you know they looked at they actually printed out his record sales to date for his previous albums as rca records and i mean i think he had maybe one gold album out of all of them and he had no platinum albums and yet somehow because of his business savvy he leveraged uh that into a for the time a big contract like a million like 1.5 million for like two or three albums mm-hmm. and you know for that one shining moment david bowie was david bowie the pop star which like we you know like we said it was a persona but it was a huge persona
1: yeah it was absolute masterstroke at the height of the reagan era
0: yeah i got a white you know a, a white male with blonde hair i mean you know and and let's face it um you know bowie had thrown references to nazis before you know we are the goon squad and we're coming to town and you know had the germanic kind of I mean, he spent three years in germany so there was definitely new i'm not saying you know David bowie was a nazi or anything like that but he wasn't above you know referencing certain things to make himself kind of appear to be you know exotic or strange i mean i'm sure you agree with that christine
2: well, that's yeah, I, I mean, I I wanted to touch on on uh, the, you know, the Nazi fascism kind of stuff, right, that he he's kind of been in hot water for um, that predated the Berlin years. That was also part of the station station era uh, where he, you know, he was quoted in Stockholm saying Britain could benefit from a fascist leader. Uh, and you know, he, he was collecting this, this Nazi memorabilia allegedly and, uh, and, you know, but so he, Brian. he, he was, he, he was in a controversial time period and, uh, you know, it was also coinciding with his hardest drug use and his, and his addictions, In 1980, so right around the time of um, Scary Monsters, you know, he was interviewed and said, uh, you know, that L.A. really was like his undoing and that it 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 really led to his downward spiral And um, he would later go on to apologize for all those controversial statements. And he would be very vocal in criticizing racism and uh, fascism in both European politics and uh, uh, American music. I mean, I've never been addicted to coke. Uh, but I can imagine that uh, that you would probably not be in your right mind, and that you especially might you, say things. Go ahead.
0: Uh, especially if you're suffering from like what what it sounds like he was suffering from cocaine psychosis. Yes. You're, you're really they say like cocaine will make you paranoid, uh, psychotic, and will enhance like your. One thing I've read about cocaine use, especially chronic users it really changes your personality it yeah. it takes the heart out of you and makes you nasty paranoid and that's what sounds like what was happening but i'm sure bowie was just so out of it he probably didn't even realize he'd said he probably doesn't even remember saying it keep in mind he doesn't remember recording the whole station to station album right so right. he was and bowie's a very intelligent down-to-earth guy i mean i think re- in reality or you know reality oh well gee another david bowie uh, hey hello but you know, and he and he was very smart to sort of apologize. I mean, back then when he did it, you know, it probably wasn't as controversial. But can you imagine, like today, if Bowie were still alive and they brought up the remarks about the Nazis and stuff and the fascism, he he, you know, he'd be banned on Facebook or Twitter or something like that.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I, I think that uh, I I really do believe him, uh, and I and I hope that I'm not. You know, wearing rose-colored glasses as a fan. But. Well,
1: obviously, what kind of racist marries Amon? Oh, he well, did. That go. was just
0: that was just a cover for the fact that he's a Nazi. Come on, Mark. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, if you. I mean, you'd mar- I'd marry Amon if, if I if I could. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is a good part as any. I mean, because this is really in a sense where Bowie kind of like peaked in terms of his commercial appeal in the U.S. and. You know, obviously, you know, we could go into like the '90s and stuff. Obviously, he did have a, a sort of artistic revival in the '90s, where he kind of went back to doing concept albums and personas. But, um, like you said, Christine, let's let's jump ahead to uh, January. Was it January? No, January of 2016.
2: Oh well, uh, yeah, okay. We I, I was going to go back to January okay. of 2013, actually. We'll go right so ahead. He, he had been you know he had been uh, steadily putting out the material throughout the 80s and the 90s uh and into the early 2000s his his album reality uh that you referenced uh was put out in 2003 and he had a huge world tour for that where you know two tragic things happened one one more so than the other Uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in Germany somewhere where somebody threw a lollipop from the audience up onto the stage and it hit him in his eye. Like uh, the stick did not the, not the, not the uh, sucker part anyway. um, So, you know, that wasn't cool. And, and, you know, he was injured from that, but it was also on that tour in Poland when he suffered a heart attack on stage. Um, And, He ended up canceling, you know, the remaining dates of the tour, which they hated to do. He had never done that, uh, ever had canceled a date. And and then he kind of just went away. And, you know, we all thought, well, he's he's done. He's retired. And on his birthday, January 8th of 2013, it was announced that he had a new album that was coming out in a couple of months. And on that same day, he released a single and uh, and a video for uh, the song "Where Are We Now," which I absolutely love. That song, uh, it's it's such a a, a bittersweet, melancholic uh, look back, uh, especially on his time in Berlin. It, it's just a lovely, lovely song. Well, anyway, so it was like it shocked the world that. Yeah. You know, somebody we thought was gone from from the show business. You know, yeah. boom, here you go. Here's an here's well, a new album.
0: What I loved about that was that it just came out of the clear blue. Like he kept it a secret. I right. mean I, I Well f- not
2: just him. The entire the entire band and police. Yeah, well, they, 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 they had to sign
0: basically confidentiality agreements.
2: Yes, that's right.
0: If they had divulged that they were working on an album, they would have been in big trouble. They could have sued them. So mm-hmm. All of a sudden, oh, here's my new song. Oh, by the way, two months from now, I'm kind of with an album. I thought, especially by, because by that point, we were well into the internet age. I mean, this is not even ten years ago. And for him to be able to keep it a secret from the industry, from the from the fanboys, you know, it wasn't even being gossiped about. Like there were, you know, other rock stars. You know, you hear rumors sometimes, and then like maybe a year later, finally they come out with something. And not only that, but he comes out with a record called The Next Day, which You know, is an album basically takes the hero's album cover, pastes over the cover art, and it just says in very plain lettering the next day. And it's just like at first you're like, this is kind of strange. But then it's like, yeah, but it's Bowie, you know, (laughs) and I and I guess like you said, it was about his time, you know, it looked back on his his time in Germany. So it makes sense that you would that you would use the album cover from that was like the middle of his so-called the Berlin Trilogy. You know, that's right. And yeah, that, um, uh, you know, turned out to be a very good album. Once again, Bowie is in he's in he's in tune. He's in time. He's thinking ahead of the curve. And, you know, he's just like doing it on his own terms. Here's my album. It's coming out and I'm not but I'm not going to tour behind it because he was don't... he
2: wouldn't even give an interview about it. Yeah, that he, was. The thing he, I... he was he was done. Like, yeah, I'm just going to put out my art and you all can do with it what you want. But this is is where I am. I think that he had
0: engineered this like this this like this this thing where he, you know, is the anonymity where nobody knew about it. That was the promotion. and It was brilliant. It was like Mm -hmm. probably the most theatrical thing he'd ever done, because everything else he'd ever come out with, it was always like. You know, oh, Bowie's going to be coming out with a new album soon, and, you know, you knew about it, and by the time, it, you know, like, you know it is with the internet age, by the time the album comes out, people have analyzed it to death, whether they've heard a note of the music or not.
2: Oh, of course, yes, yes. Or, you know, it's, oh, I've heard one song, oh, well, that album's great, or that album sucks. How do you know? You You haven't even sat with that one song for more than yeah. 15 if, minutes. Everybody know. has
0: an opinion, even about stuff they've never even heard before.
2: <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, like that's like, you know, like like Mark, if Mark were to talk about the '80s, because in his opinion, the '80s doesn't exist, so he couldn't have heard any music that came from it.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> well, I, I didn't like the direction that Funky Town was going in, so <laughs> I pretty much assumed that there was nothing worth hearing then.
0: <laughs> Mark, have any thoughts about David Bowie's reemergence after uh, what was basically nearly a decade? Yeah.
1: It's the period of his career that i have to admit that i wasn't paying exactly a lot of attention um the 90s i know that he had albums out during the 90s and of course he he got a, somewhat of a resurgence when nirvana recovered uh the man who sold the world for their unplugged album
2: mm-hmm.
1: but i i can't say that i really know I have any degree of familiarity with, it, with its actual um, contemporary work during that period.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Mark. I mean, the, the, the song I remember most from the 90s was the, um, they say, jump from Black Tie White Noise, which was kind of on the radio. I mean, he started out the decade being part of a quote-unquote group called Tin Machine and, you know, where he was just one of the boys, but that's probably… Or he tried his, to be. Try to be. Yeah, it, it, I don't think the public was buying it.
2: No, they weren't letting the sa-
1: it. The Sales Brothers, the Sales Brothers from Todd Rundgren's band.
0: Yeah, and you know who yeah,
2: their Tony
0: dad
2: was. Mm-hmm. Huh? Sorry. You know
0: sorry to Say was? that again. Uh, Hunting uh, Sales. You know who their their the Sales Brothers. You know who their dad was? It's
1: the okay. man who invited the man who invited all the little kids to go into their parents' uh, room and take all the little green pieces of paper and put them in an envelope and send them to them.
0: <laughs> should be sales that's right <laughs> Who would have thought that, a good, about that. A game show a tv comedian slash game show contestant would have given birth to two of david bowie's sidemen but yeah it's a small world and we're gonna and now we're gonna jump ahead unless you got something else to say christine about the next day
1: well the other thing i remember from the 90s there was a song called little wonder that kind of had um was it called yep. Little Wonder?
2: Yeah. Little Wonder, a, Little Wonder, you. Yep.
1: That had kind of, uh, I guess he was making a techno record.
2: It was kind of, yeah. That was one of my daughter's favorite songs. That's, that's off the album Earthling. And that was probably, uh, God, we listened to that one track on a loop. And mm-hmm. she was, well, she was four. <laughs> um, yeah. It does sound oh. like the kind of it does sound
1: like the kind of song that a four year old really would like. You know <laughs> it has that you know what it reminds me of? You remember the uh the episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where the radio keeps playing that song that goes beep 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 boop 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 beep beep beep, beep boop 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 no. and like Mr. Krabs is on the I phone do. going hmm?
2: But but speaking of SpongeBob, did you know that Bowie was writing songs for the Broadway musical based on SpongeBob SquarePants? No. So it all comes back together. And Davy Jones no. of the Monkees was also on SpongeBob. It all comes it back together.
0: It all ties together. in. I'm telling you, you, exactly. you can make a you can make a, a dot between all these artists who tie in together and have and have been featured on Ken Mill's podcast. Shout out to the Podfather. <laughs> Our podfather, of course. But, yeah, well, wow, that's interesting. Also, that. the
1: dirty bubble played by Charles Nelson Riley.
0: <laughs> you wouldn't know that. <laughs> Mark, Mark, you know, Mark's going to have to do, like, a sidecast someday. Or maybe we'll even do it on this show where we talk about game shows in the 1970s. Because Mark is an aficionado of those.
2: Oh, my God. you He he could do a whole series just himself. That, Yeah, yeah he
0: could. He could just, you know, anchor it himself and just, you know. Or, you know, that uh, that almost sounds like something that could be done on pop as well. But anyway, I, mean, I still say that we should have the pop game, but we could do that. We could, you know, we could maybe we could even get Ken to kind of join in.
2: We, well, we, we can, kind of had that with I mean, the, that's Ken's take on it is he had that with uh, the fun size show. All right, that was his right. version of a game show. So.
0: Right. That's right.
2: Yeah.
0: Christine or Mark, do you guys have anything else to say about the next day?
2: I do not, but I have a lot to say about the next no. album, but okay, I'm bummed.
0: Gonna... <laughs> Mark? That
1: album, no, I really can't contribute much. Okay.
0: Well, let's jump ahead to what would end up being uh, David Bowie's final album. We're going to jump forward three years, January 8th, 2016, when all of a sudden, once again, unbeknownst to anyone, David Bowie drops another album on the world. And uh, Christine, why don't you tell us the name of that album and uh, tell us a little about it.
2: Oh uh, well, this is uh, you, you talked about how uh, the next day was artistically like one of the the pinnacles for him, and this album dropped in 2016 called Black Star, is actually the pinnacle for me. It was released on his 69th birthday, and. Two days later, he died of liver cancer, something that nobody knew that he well, I shouldn't say that. Not nobody. Nobody in the public knew that he was sick uh, and certainly not with uh, with liver cancer. But Black Star is if you if you listen to it, you can hear him telling his fans that "I'm, I'm dying. It's going to be OK, but it it really was his swan song and he planned it that way. And my God, if it, talk about being an artist to the end, a performer yeah. to the end to time it and then to basically say, OK, I'm, I'm done on this mortal plane and he, and he let go.
0: That is exactly what I thought I said, how more Bowie is this to put out an album on your 69th birthday and then to die two years later? I mean, in an alternate reality, I could see David Bowie doing an album where he plays a character who releases his last album and then dies. I mean, and I don't, and I say that with no disrespect, no sarcasm, no irony, no disingenuousness because that was Bowie and he, you know he here's my final statement goodbye world, I had fun, I'm off to the next level of reality. you know, right. and, I'm sh- and I'm sure Bowie has probably ended up in a place in the universe that's a hell of a lot more interesting than 2021 Earth, you know, as such as it is.
2: He, he said, I don't know where I'm going, but I know it will be interesting. Right? You're right.
0: He did say that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And um, I know, to your point, that that's That famous phrase, "You can't make this stuff up," right? If 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 a Hollywood writer wrote this, they'd say, "You're crazy. Go back and you know scrap this idea. This nobody will buy this."
0: Well, when you consider what David Bowie had done in the past to promote his releases, how how can you top "Dying"? (laughs) I mean, like, well, okay, it's like literally mic drop. Good night. Boom. Yes. And then I'm done. And then and like he doesn't have to hear any rebuttals. He doesn't have to read any bad reviews. He's just like, he's leaving. I I did it my way, you know, quote like to to, sort of quote Sinatra, Mm -hmm. but he did do it his way. He left on his terms. He did a very kind of cryptic goodbye. You know, I mean, obviously read between the lines, it's there in the lyrics, but he left and he left with, you know, music that was kind of jazz influenced weird, but, ultimately bowie and he left on his terms he did not and he left on a high note i mean you know to just put out you know to be dying but yet at the same time really putting yourself into your music not like making it like um i'm dying oh feel bad for me it's more like okay i've i'm doing my thing this is my statement i don't care you do with it what you will
2: right um and and you're right that uh you know the first 24, 48 hours, again, when everybody has to weigh in on whatever the new thing is, lest they be thought of as not on the ball with, you know, with whatever. Um, there was a lot of like, okay, this is interesting. and uh, But, you know, three days later, you know, people were – picking everything apart oh yeah Uh, every every lyric every video everything right i think it is a brilliant brilliant piece of art from start to finish first of all the the name of the album is black star do you do either of you know what a black star is
1: i take it to mean what a a collapsing star a, a supernova
2: yes you're 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 very you're very close it 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 there's that meaning there's another meaning of it's like a hidden planet once upon a time saturn was considered a black star because it wasn't visible necessarily and um and there are people who believe that there is a a black star, a hidden planet that is on a collision course with the earth. It's going to land and kill us all. But, but going back to um, the collapsed star thing uh, in physics, it's actually the term for the transitional state between a collapsed star and a singularity, a state of infinite value. And so if Bowie was, ref- and the lyric is, something happened on the day he died, spirit rose a meter and then stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried, I'm a black star. So if you think about Bowie comparing himself to being that collapsed star as he is still living at the end of his life, and that state of infinite value being the place that he believed that he would be after death. I mean, hello. That's that's just mind-blowing right there to me.
0: And, and that's one to grow on. In- like when um,
1: in 2001, at the end, you know, where Bowman passes through the Stargate... And goes through the cycle of life, so to speak, in that strange hotel-like environment, and ends up at the other side. What is as a, as, a, as a childlike being?
0: Yes, right. Yep. You guys are full of information. I mean, Christine, you know, you're not only cute and bubbly, but you're just full of useful and smart information. <laughs> useless information. <laughs> well, hey, this this show is this show is the epitome of useless. <laughs> we, 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 that's our stock and trade. That's what we ply is useless stuff. We have fun doing it. Uh, Mark, do you have any thoughts on David Bowie's grand finale? I really can't add much. Oh, hold
1: on a second. Let me think about this.
0: Well, you can you can at least comment on his exit. I mean, his you know his timing. Yeah, you
1: definitely can't beat his timing, his flair for the dramatic, and also his I guess you could say honesty. He's entertaining us at the same time he's making a point, at the same time he's summing himself up. And he's delivering his own eulogy, printing his own epitaph out, and giving us some music at the same time. So he's basically packaging himself, unpacking himself, and getting ready to go, I guess, unburdening himself.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean he like I said, he had the last word and I'm like, I'm done. See ya. You know, and I, I mean I don't know what else to say about that really. Christine, do you have any other thoughts on that? Or I I do. I
2: I there are there's just a couple of other lyrics that I want to touch on. The the first one is the the closing track on Black Star is a song called I Can't Give Everything Away. Lyrically it's relatively short but the the piece of it the the verse that sticks out to me is seeing more and feeling less saying no but meaning yes that is all i ever meant that's the meaning that i have sent you know he he was feeling his imminent demise he was feeling every bit of his mortality and and you know lamenting that that maybe he was being misunderstood on some level. But, but the line then, you know, basically the chorus is nothing more than I can't give it all away. I can't give everything away. He kept some things, some pieces of himself for himself, even as, you know, one of the most uh, influential or prominent uh, figures in pop culture. I think that that was a lesson that was hard learned for him. I think that he, in the early days, in the 70s, he did give so much of himself away. And I think he learned over time the value of, I I can't do that, or I can't keep doing that. Well, I think also... Um,
0: you know, in his later years, he he had cleaned up his act. You know, no drugs, no alcohol. I even read somewhere that he, after his heart attack, he'd quit smoking. Yes. So he, did. he probably got some wisdom, some clarity, and realized, like you said, I can't give it all away, and kept something for himself and his wife and his kids. You know, and um, yeah.
2: I have to mention that the day, the day, did that today, the day we are recording is his son duncan's 50th birthday so happy birthday to duncan
0: you mean zoe
2: bowie i do mean zoe bowie i don't you know Uh,
0: years that his son's name was zoe bowie and then it was supposedly joey bowie it turns out he's never had either name that was just a again one of bowie's you know misdirections
2: Actually, that's not true. The Joey part was never true, but his full name is uh, is Duncan Zoe Haywood Jones, and Zoe is I forget the language, but it means life. So that's a Bowie. Well, I well the spelling of it certainly was Z O W I E, but but it was after the Z O E name, which means life. Well,
1: there are a great number of uh, Greek goddesses named Zoe, and also mm -hmm. a lot of Greek and Byzantine emperors named empresses named Zoe.
0: I had a grandmother whose name was Zoe. I never met her. She she passed away long before I was born. But so yeah, it bears that out. So
2: and and Duncan uh, has named his daughter Zoe. Nice. But yeah, it is nice. nice it is nice so, ha- so happy birthday to Duncan. Yeah, and
0: yeah, um, he's become a uh, film director.
2: He is. Yes, he yeah, is. He didn't follow in his uh, dad's
0: footsteps, but I'm sure his dad was proud of him because he became a filmmaker.
2: Right. He was. He was in the biz, so to speak. No, Duncan has said that he can't carry a tune to save his life, so well, he, he he's never going to gonna do that. He doesn't have to. That's, that's right. That's right. Uh, the the last Duncan, thing. I, I think. Have, is... Go ahead, Mark.
1: I was gonna say, uh, Duncan. As far as I know, was more is most popular for inventing that pastry that has a hole in it, right? And then he, and then you like drink it with coffee. <laughs> Come on, guys.
2: Uh, a bagel. A
0: <laughs> donut. Duncan. Duncan. Mm. Don- oh my god well uh and this is gonna be mark's last episode of the show he's exceeded our pun uh requirement for each episode bad
2: uh, 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 jokes for the win
0: we have bad jokes at our, our, our show is a bad
2: dad joke. dad
0: oh dad well see we're all, uh, my hearing is going as well you know what can i tell you christine um do you have any final thoughts on david bowie
2: I I have to leave with with just the reading of the lyrics to Lazarus, which was um, uh, the lead single off of Black Star, because it's talking when we were talking about, you know, people were picking everything apart, parsing it all. Here are here is, you know, the the story that he left us with. Uh, Look up here. I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now. Look up here, man. I'm in danger. I've got nothing left to lose. I'm so high it makes my brain whirl. Dropped my cell phone down below. (laughs) Ain't that just like me? By the time I got to New York, I was living like a king. There, I'd used up all my money. I was looking for your ass. This way or no way, you know I'll be free just like that bluebird now ain't that just like me oh i'll be free just like that bluebird i'll be free
0: i think that sums it up thusly. i mean that's you can't say any more than that mark do you have any final thoughts on uh, david bowie a good egg a <laughs> good egg yes well the you, you can't get you know you can't get a much better recommendation than that yeah. <laughs> As me, like I said, I, I've I've, have, I've always respected David Bowie. I, I will say this. When he came out the next day, I said to myself, if he tours again, I'm going to go see him because, you know, I want to be able to say that I got to see David Bowie. And sadly, of course, that never happened. But I have nothing but respect for Bowie, and um, I'm glad we decided to talk about him finally. And Christine, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show and uh, expounding on the wonder of David Jones, a.k.a. David Bowie.
2: Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. I I talk Bowie all the time. So that was great. Well, maybe we'll have to and,
0: maybe maybe we'll come back into a, a a follow-up episode to talk about some of the stuff we couldn't talk about.
2: Cool, cool. Maybe by the end of that we'll convince Mark that the 80s really did happen. <laughs> well,
1: I think uh, that Christine should come back for our Paul McCartney retrospective. Oh, uh, the long the, the long Bob winding road.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the long bob, bob. There you go. I have some ideas for, for Christine's return as well. I'll, we'll discuss them after we rec- we finish recording. Well, with that, we end yet leave another. The,
2: leave the listener <laughs> hanging. Is that what you're doing there?
0: That's right. We w- we <laughs> want to leave them hanging. We don't, you know, we want to keep our listener come to k- keep coming back. We we, we may be up to two by now. I know of at least one person who listens to us on a regular basis. <laughs> Thank you, um, you know, Sven in um, in Thailand or whatever. <laughs> anyway. For the Double K Super Show, I'm Chris Caram. I'm Mark Konsarovsky.
2: And we'll see you I'm the next Christine time. the Button Queen. Hold Sorry. On, let, me do, let
0: me do that again. <laughs> let me do that again. Two, three, two, one. For the Double K Super Show, I'm Chris Caram. Wait, hold on. Who, who three, am two, I? Two, three, two,
2: one. <laughs> and thus ends at another. See? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> This is Ground blah, 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 Control blah, blah. to Major Tom.
0: We're going to have an entire episode just devoted to the outro. Okay. There
2: you go. Three,
0: two, one. See ya. Jesus Christ. I'm giving this in, by the way. So great. People need to keep our, our, our show unraveling you know, on it while we're recording. <laughs> and then, <laughs> oh my god! And yet,
1: and a and one this, and a two, and
0: <laughs>
1: tiny <laughs>
2: bubbles in I just want to the want We just keep
0: going. I mean, we can just we can just have a whole podcast based on this alone.
2: <laughs>
0: this, I think you have. <laughs> and I'm and I'm trying to end yet another episode of the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam I'm Mark Konzorowski.
2: And I'm Christine the Button Queen.
0: And we will see you next time on the Double K Super Show. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple
1: Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media.
0: Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.